Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Power in Weakness, from 2 Corinthians. So turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Reconciliation for Repentant People. It's hard to exercise church discipline, but it's even harder to exercise restoration to a truly repentant person. Start with church discipline. It's almost a forgotten command these days. You know, Matthew 18, Jesus made it clear that there was a process of discipline in every Christian community. Step one in the process is that one individual confronts the sinner. This can be the case of a person confronting someone who sinned against them. But it can also be a case when someone in leadership will confront someone who is openly sinning and then carefully and lovingly show the sinner the error of his or her ways and then call him or her to repent and get right with the Lord. Now, if that process is successful, that's the end of the matter. But what if it's not? Well, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, the next step, step two, if you will, is to take someone else along, perhaps even two others, so that witnesses can make an informed decision as to whether the matter is truly a sin and to reinforce the seriousness of sinning without repenting. And if that's successful, that's the end of the matter. Well, what if it's not? Well, in that case, step three involves taking the matter to the church. And if that's not successful, the person in question, that is the person who refuses to repent, is removed from the church. Those are Jesus' own instructions to his church. Now, I started by saying that those instructions that come directly from our Lord are frequently ignored today. You know, I recently read an article on church discipline in which the article began with a picture of one of those crude instruments of torture. I mean, the kind that has two boards with notches in them. You put someone's head through it and their two hands, and then they're locked in for public shaming in a town square. So the article went on to say that church discipline doesn't mean kicking people out when they fail. Rather, it means walking with them through their dark valleys. Well, fine and well, that is the ideal. But in Matthew 18, Jesus is not talking about when people fail. He's talking about when people sin. So replacing the word sin with the word fail, well, that's a very neat trick. But let's say they do sin. Jesus demands that we walk with them through their dark valleys in order to lead them out. Well, that's true. But what if they say, I prefer the valley of darkness. Just keep walking with me in the darkness. And Jesus' answer, I mean, the answer that comes right from Jesus' own lips, recorded in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is to say, put him out of the church. So those are not my words, folks. That's that's the attitude of Jesus. But what does one do when the person who has taken it that far and refused to repent and then is removed from the church, what if that person, after all of that, comes to their senses and earnestly repents? Well, that's the scenario that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. But before we begin to read, a note of explanation is required. Let's review what we've learned from our study of 2 Corinthians. First, we learned that Paul had written 1 Corinthians to a troubled church. And then we've learned that the Corinthian church hadn't received that letter very well. And today we're going to learn the reason for that. One of the leaders in that church, a man who was influenced by the false teachers and a very powerful leader in that church, 
took exception to 1 Corinthians and seems to have led the entire church to oppose the letter. And as to the false teaching that this man was influenced by, well, well, you get a hint of that if you go all the way ahead to 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, it seems a very powerful leader in Corinth took exception to Paul and was also either influenced by or actually teaching a different gospel. Now then, he also began to slander Paul, and he he was suggesting that Paul was dishonest and double-minded, or a host of charges. And seeing that things were going wrong, Paul made a very quick visit to Corinth, a visit we have called the painful visit. There the man verbally assaulted Paul in full view of everybody and challenged his apostolic authority, and Paul was deeply hurt by that. And after that, he returned to Ephesus. And when he wrote the second letter, that's the one we don't have. And now today, we're going to learn something about what must have been in that letter. It seems that Paul had been quite direct about the leader of the rebellion. He probably mentioned him by name, and he reminded the church of the teaching of Jesus and the need to repent. And I have no doubt he re-explained the pattern of discipline laid out by Jesus. It was Titus who delivered that painful letter, and, and it seems that the believers in Corinth took heart. They repented. The powerful leader did not, and eventually, the majority of the believers in that church agreed to put that man out of the church. He was excommunicated. And that's where we pick up today. So we start by reading 2 Corinthians 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. That is, you Corinthians must understand the nature of the struggle. Most believers, when they see someone accusing a leader of sin, just stand there and see what's going to happen next. Well, if the leader isn't guilty of sin, but if it's a power struggle, let me explain what happens next. The church goes into crisis. No one is there to stop false teachers. People who may have had divisions before are now more divisive than ever. A power struggle ensues, and the name of Jesus is no longer proclaimed in the community. That's what Paul is saying. This crisis, this attack on me, was not just an attack on me. It was an attack on all of us. See, at this point, I think it is worthwhile to mention Paul's words in the, in the first Corinthian letter. First Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. It's the nature of the body of Jesus. If one member attacks the apostle Paul and creates great pain for him, the entire body of believers feels that pain. And so in verse 5, what Paul is doing is he's trying to highlight that he's not the only one who suffered because of the slander that was raised against him. And so what did the church in Corinth do in the midst of the crisis? It seems they turned to the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. And by the way, if you wonder about this, you know, this lost letter that Paul wrote the Corinthians, I think it's a very likely assumption that he wrote them reminding them of Jesus' teaching on this matter and encourage them to stop being spectators and simply watching the carnage of accusation and false teaching. But instead, a command was given to the entire congregation to do what Christ had commanded them to do. You know, uh, one more matter before we move on to the next several verses. 
There's an old tradition that says that the man who did all this damage is the very same man that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember that Paul said that there was a man who had been sleeping with his father's wife, that is, with his stepmother. Now, as to that tradition, I don't know whether it's true or not. But I do think that with false teaching, there is a readiness to hurl accusations at others, and behind all of that is a deeply immoral heart, a heart that's been deeply influenced by the prince of darkness. And it may well be that the evil that was done against the apostle Paul was a great deal more insidious than Paul lets on here in this letter. Well, at any rate, let's move forward. Paul has said that the man in question has caused a great deal of pain, not just to him, but also to the whole church. So we come now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. (laughs) When Paul mentions this punishment by the majority, he is no doubt referring to the majority decision in the church, that is, the decision to excommunicate this man. But now, and this seems surprising beyond belief, Paul then in the very next breath says the punishment is enough. Now is the time to turn around and forgive this man. What did he just say? Is it just so easy? I mean, after all the carnage and hurt, the divisions that up to that moment would not have been fully healed, that now would be a good time to forgive this man? Indeed, Paul expresses genuine concern for him. And he might, says Paul, be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. What if he sinks into despair, says Paul, perhaps even a very long period of depression? I'm sorry. And we just one chapter before this had seen Paul at the very edge of despair himself to the point where he despaired of life itself. How much of that despair had been caused by this hurtful and self-absorbed man who had brought the church in Corinth to the brink of ruin? Concern for him now, that's quite a thought. Hey, this is Dr. John Newfeld of Back to the Bible Canada. Take the opportunity today to sponsor a pastor to attend our June 2020 Back to the Bible Canada third annual Bible teaching conference hosting hundreds of Indian pastors across India. Conferences will take place in Delhi, Hyderabad, and Chennai. I will be teaching pastors to learn the discipline of effectively teaching the Bible and sharing the gospel. You know, many pastors in India have little opportunity for formal education, so being trained and equipped can mean so much to their ministry. This year, you can sponsor the attendance of an Indian pastor for only $55, which includes the cost of the conference, resources, travel, accommodations, and food. Join us in this great cause of continuing to equip pastors in India. Consider sponsoring one or more pastors to attend the India Bible Teaching Conference this June Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit sendapastor.ca. I don't know about you. I think forgiveness and reconciliation on top of that, you know, it's always a risky business. You know, let's just say it, and I think this is what happened, but let's say the Corinthian church did exactly what Paul wanted them to do. Remember, Paul has just said that the majority in that church had been in favor of excommunicating this unrepentant troublemaker. 
And that would mean that there was a minority who had agreed with the troublemaker, or I guess at the very least, felt that he shouldn't have been disciplined. Let's also assume that this minority might still be of the same opinion still. Uh, What exactly happens when such a divisive figure becomes the object of forgiveness and the church not only forgives, but, says Paul, expresses and reaffirms that they love him? That's what reconciliation is all about. Now, of course, we have to make an assumption here, and the assumption is that the man had been excommunicated according to the teaching of Jesus, and that was laid out, Matthew 18, 15 to 17. And it might even be that when Titus delivered Paul's letter, that is, the severe one, that Titus even chaired the meeting of the church in which the church came to that conclusion. But here's the assumption. After the matter was completed, at some time, this man must have expressed remorse for his action. Perhaps he even communicated that in some fashion he wished to be forgiven. Now, at this point, it would be easy to assume the worst of motives. What if he's only saying that in order to regain a position of leadership and influence? I mean, after all, there is a minority that never agreed with a church decision. And if the Corinthian church sees to reconcile with this man, they're opening themselves up to a danger, to, you know, round two of a fight that almost destroyed this church in the first place. But let's turn the matter around, shall we? What should happen if the church takes the safe route and simply cuts the man off and never reconciles? What then? Well, for one, we need to ignore the command that was given us in Galatians 6, verses 1 to 2. That passage says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love and to bear one another's burdens and to be like the shepherd who left the 99 and went after that one sheep who had strayed. You know, the law of Christ is to forgive our enemies. Indeed, if we don't fulfill the law of Christ, according to Galatians 6 verse 1, we're not keeping watch over ourselves. Every one of us has the potential for stumbling, for allowing unrepentant sin to remain. And if we don't forgive and reconcile the repentant, how are we to understand Jesus' parable about the man who has forgiven a a great debt by a king and then grabbed a guy who owed him some money and demanded that he repay? How are we ever to pray the Lord's Prayer when we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? You see, as risky as it is to forgive and to restore this man, I would say this. It's far more risky to fail to do so. Colossians 3 verse 13 instructs Christians to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. So we must, did you hear that? So we must, says Colossians 3.13, we must forgive. In truth, Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church about this truly disruptive brother who now came in repentance that is, they are to express to him the command of Christ. Watch out for him, says Paul. Don't let him slip into despair. Make sure that everyone in the entire church expresses their love for that man. You know, having given that command, Paul now takes this matter to an amazing conclusion. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 9 to 11. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. 
You know, it turns out that this matter of forgiveness is a test. Paul wants to know if the Corinthians will be obedient in everything. And we need to stop for a moment and consider the gravity of that question. You know, some of the difficult things that happen, either, you know, to a local church or to any individual, it's a test. Will we be obedient in everything? How about I can almost hear the protest. Who's obedient in everything? I mean, we, we all sin. We all have faults. Yeah, we do. But that's not what Paul is asking, is it? He's not asking the Corinthians to prove their sinlessness. Rather, he's asking them to prove their willingness to submit to Christ in everything. Listen, you're not a follower of Jesus if you pick and choose your moments of obedience. Lord, I'll obey you in commands one, two, and three, but that thing, you know, that that number four thing, (laughs) you know, the answer is no. You know, if that's our attitude, let's not deceive ourselves. If that's our attitude, we only obey those things that we find comfortable or agreeable or to, or to our advantage. Then we aren't following Jesus. We're only, we're only following ourselves. You can only tell if you're a follower of Jesus when he asks you to do something you really don't want to do. And at that moment, you're going to discover whether you follow yourself or whether you follow Jesus. And hear me out. Jesus is not satisfied with 90% submission. He demands we bow our head to all of his commands. And so says Paul, you Corinthians will be helped to think about this difficulty as an opportunity given to you by Jesus to test you to see whether or not you're actually following him. Now then, it turns out there might be still another difficulty. Yes, some might say, I can see Christ's command to forgive. But we all watched as this man took on the apostle Paul and deeply wounded him in front of all of us. It was a horrible thing to watch. If we turn now to forgive him, won't there always be a breach between us and Paul? We'll have restored a man, but we'll have wounded the apostle. Now, don't you see? That same scenario gets played out in a hundred different environments. For instance, when there's a deep disagreement between two people, some of us might wonder, you know, if I forgive that one person for hurting my friend, I will re-victimize my friend. It happens in families. It happens in work environments. It happens in the nation's politics. It happens to the young in school when cliques form. And one can move very quickly from being on the inside to being on the outside of the group. And because Paul will mention Satan at the very last, we can already see how many angles there are here. Satan loves to divide people and to make sure those divisions are never healed. He would prefer people die with those divisions in place. And so in order to take away this potential obstacle, Paul is very clear. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. In effect, he is saying that he believes that the church will be guided by the words of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. If you have examined this man and found him to be genuinely repentant, and if you wish to restore this man in your fellowship, then know this. I also, along with you, have forgiven him. There is no more animosity between us. Paul says, I am not only motivated by my obedience to Christ in this matter, I am also motivated, verse 10 says, for your sake. And then Paul adds this matter about Satan's designs. We're not ignorant, he says. We know exactly what Satan is up to. I have found over the years that when Satan attacks Christ's church, his usual manner is not heresy. Yeah, of course. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, there really are deceiving spirits and there are doctrines of demons. All false teaching comes from the evil one. But for Christians well-grounded in the word of God, 
This plan of Satan to deceive us with false teaching, you know, this will fail. But then Satan resorts to his most powerful weapon in his arsenal. He sows grudges between Christians. He takes the thoughtless insults of someone and ensures that moment lives for the rest of their lives. Animosity grows, bitterness develops, a very deep root, and it's never pulled out. I think Simon Kistemaker said it better than anyone. He said, The devil hates forgiveness and Christian love. He wants to see despondency, despair, and darkness in that atmosphere, said Kistemaker. Satan is able to reclaim a pardoned sinner. Oh, end quote. But we also know the kingdom of God gives us a very different picture, doesn't it? It gives us the picture of the prodigal son who wished to come home. Yeah, it's true. The prodigal had spent his father's fortune on prostitutes and wild living. But now sitting in a pigsty, he remembers the love and the grandeur of his father's house, and he wants to come home. When Christ is the head of his church, The church with Jesus says to the worst of sinners who are repentant, come home. We will love you. We will restore you. And if Christ says it, his faithful church responds, amen. We will follow. Here's the deal. What do you think about this statement that I'm about to make? Time heals all grievances. Is it true? I mean, can we just assume that time is going to heal everything that happens in our grievances that we have against each other? Yeah, I guess the easy answer is no, it doesn't. Um, It is true, Ben, that uh, some things that seem so large to us, you know, given enough time, we look back on it and say, well, I think I overdid that. So in that sense, yeah, it is true that time does heal a great many things because maybe our attitude shifts or, you know, whatever happens. But the things that are really important, I suspect time doesn't heal at all. Uh, In fact, uh, as time goes on, those things kind of deepen. And you do hear of rifts developing between people that, you know, given enough time, it seems impossible to crawl out of that. I, you know, Ben, as I think about um, the willingness that Paul has of the guy that wounded him the most, uh, now that he had come to a place of repentance that, you know, Paul's like jumping in the front of the line and saying, you know, let's restore that guy. Wow, what a great, great example that is for all of us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Power in Weakness, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Laugh Again, a ministry resource of Back to the Bible Canada, has a profound impact on so many lives. In five brief minutes a day, Phil Calloway, through his special gifts of encouragement and humor, has opened doors to people hearing the gospel or simply finding hope in difficult times. We've received so many notes and emails of deep appreciation for Laugh Again. Well, we're expanding our programming with Laugh Again TV. That's right, Laugh Again will be aired on YouTube to present Laugh Again Take 5. These are five-minute videos produced to reach a huge audience with a unique message of hope and joy found in Christ. So check out the Laugh Again TV YouTube channel and subscribe so you never risk missing an episode. For more information or to support the ministry of Laugh Again, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.